This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This interview with author Douglas Preston was recorded in the KPFA studios on January 13, 2017, and first posted as a podcast on March 12, 2017. Since the interview, four Pendergast novels have been published, with the fifth scheduled for 2023, along with one book in the Gideon Crew series and three in a new series featuring Nora Kelly. The Last City of the Monkey God remains his most recent nonfiction book. My guest is Douglas Preston, whose latest book is The Lost City of the Monkey Gods. Douglas Preston has quite a few books to his credit. There are 24 novels with Lincoln Child, seven solo novels, three collections of stories, eight nonfiction books. Along the way, writes for National Geographic, The New Yorker. This book, Lost City of the Monkey God, comes out of articles written for both The New Yorker and National Geographic, and takes us in a lot of different directions, including an expedition to Honduras. Toward the end, turns into kind of almost a medical thriller that's real life. You write thrillers and you write nonfiction books. How does the work on the thrillers influence the work on the nonfiction, and how does the work on the nonfiction influence the thrillers? That's a very good question. So many of my thrillers, the subject matter comes out of my nonfiction books. Like I wrote an article for uh, The New Yorker on cannibalism many years ago. And then I wrote a novel, uh, a thriller involving cannibalism and archaeologists and all the rest of it. But I also think that writing thrillers, which are stories, helps me write nonfiction structuring nonfiction because, you know, good nonfiction, good narrative nonfiction tells a story too. And the same principles of good storytelling in fiction also apply to nonfiction. Does that include withholding information to kind of build suspense? You know, in nonfiction, you really shouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> right. It's that that's not kosher to withhold information. You have to present the information to the reader as it naturally occurs. So it's more with nonfiction, it's more a question of pacing and of storytelling, as opposed to with fiction, you're often withholding all kinds of stuff. Creating a book like Lost City of the Monkey God, which is not really a straightforward narrative of one thing, it's many things at once, how did you decide to structure and at what point did you realize that there was a book here and the book was larger than any of these individual articles? Well, that's a really good question because... It's an archaeological story. It's a story of history. It's a medical mystery, and it's also a story of high technology as well. I mean, it's incredible to think that in the 21st century, you could actually still find a lost city somewhere on Earth. And that's what this story is. I mean, that, the book tells that story, but it involves, in the beginning, you know, a story about crazy con men, fraudsters, and so forth, who were looking for the lost city. And then it tells the story of a very high-tech exploration for it from the air and the discovery of it. And then a very straight archaeological story about a ground expedition into to survey the city and excavate it. And then finally, 
it turns into a medical mystery. So how did I get it all together? I don't know. I, I hope that it hangs together, but only the reader can, can say. Well, when you first got the contract, did you know that the medical stuff had already happened? I did, yeah. I, I knew that I was very sick <laughs> and that I uh, wasn't good. Um, I also knew that I had a fascinating disease. Uh, if you're going to get sick, get sick with an interesting disease, not a boring disease. And I got sick with a really interesting one. One of the nice things about being a writer is that when bad things happen to you, you can at least write about it. One final question before we move on to the content. Are you planning to take this material and turn it into a novel? Well, probably. You know, my writing partner, Lincoln, that I do the Agent Pendergast novels with, read the book recently. He said, oh, he said, I see two or three novels we can pull out of this material. This is great. So who knows what, what it'll turn into. Well, let, let's go back then and we'll talk about Lost City of the Monkey God. To begin with, you had already done books on Egypt, on other cities, on Cambodia. You went into the Cambodian jungle. I was there less than a year ago at Angkor Wat. You've kind of been looking for, as you called it, one place, cities of gold. Had Central America ever been on kind of your bucket list? Well, it, it did. You know, I've, I've been to many Maya cities, some excavated, some not excavated. I found that the unexcavated cities were really fascinating. You tramp through the jungle, and here's this jungle-covered pyramid rising up, and I love that stuff. But here was an opportunity to find a city that had never been found. I mean, it was completely unknown, and that was something quite unique. Well, it turns out, of course, you found two cities, and neither of them are really the lost city of the monkey god, insofar as you know, or the white city. You don't really know what you have there. No, we don't. I mean, I think actually that the, the legend of the white city or the lost city of the monkey god is really a metaphor for not a single lost city, but for a lost civilization. This civilization in Muscadia, this very mysterious civilization, really built many large cities in the jungle. And before it vanished, very suddenly, about 500 years ago. And so I, I think that the legend really is sort of a metaphor for all these cities. So as, as one archaeologist said, I think there are many lost cities, white cities in the jungle. Muscadia, how big is that area? Because, uh, you know, Honduras isn't that big. It's really undefined, you know. Um, and actually, La Mosquitia, the region, actually spills quite a bit into Nicaragua as well. And it involves the Mosquito Coast as well as the Interior Mountains. It's a very remote area. Even the coast is remote. But these mountains, some of the thickest jungle in the world, lies on top of these stunningly rugged mountain chains. In the interior of these mountains are valleys, isolated valleys, that have never been scientifically explored. They're actually some of the last unexplored places on the surface of the earth. Um, and there are many reasons for that, the, the danger, the difficulty getting there, the political dysfunction, and so forth. The story actually begins putting aside all of the tales of explorers and con artists. The story actually begins in the 1990s when someone tried to, well, Steve Elkins tried to get a uh, expedition going, but it didn't really take off until the development of something called LIDAR, L-I-D-A-R. Is that the pronunciation? That's right, LIDAR, light detection and ranging. It's an incredibly powerful technology. I first got involved in this in the mid-1990s with this guy, crazy guy named Steve Elkins who had an obsession 
with finding this legendary city and filming the discovery. He's a filmmaker. He's also an archaeologist too, but I honestly, to be honest with you, I was quite sure he was never going to find the lost city. But I thought, well, it's kind of a funny story. Even if he doesn't find it, it'll be sort of a, a kind of a charming story. So I, I hung, hung in there with him. And in 2012, he got financing, a half a million dollars, and was able to deploy this technology called LIDAR. It's a million-dollar machine flown on a small plane, and it fires 125,000 laser beams a second into the jungle canopy below. So many beams that a few of those beams reach the ground and reflect back up to the plane. Well, first they create a point cloud, which is a a cloud of all the reflections in three-dimensional space, you know, in digital space. And then, using software, they can remove all the trees, leaving only the ground points. And that's where you see what's on the ground. And he used this technology in 2012, and by God... He discovered two lost cities. He had three target areas, and he found a lost city in T1 and a lost city in T3. Well, you went with him on that journey on, in 2012, I, I, I and was, you, you flew in the plane. I did, yeah. I was actually the only one to fly in the plane. Steve didn't fly in the plane. I, I flew in the plane with the pilot and the LIDAR engineer, and I'm telling you, it was incredible. You, This valley, you can see it on Google Earth, actually. If you, if you go on Google Earth into the heart of Mesquite, you will see a very peculiar kind of crater-like valley, completely surrounded by steep mountains with only a one notch where the river flows out. It looks like Conan Doyle's Lost World. I mean, it actually looks like something out of Hollywood. I'll never forget flying into that valley in the LiDAR plane. You, you come over these, these terrific mountains, and suddenly unrolling before you is almost like a paradise of beautiful two streams and meadows and thick, thick forests, monkeys in the treetops and birds flying below you and vultures circling. And it's just an amazing, amazing sight. And then you came back and you looked and you all went, wow, we have cities here. Well, it was, it was funny because, I, as I said, I wasn't expecting anything. There were three engineers who came down from the National Center for Airborne Laser Mapping at the University of Houston who were actually doing the, doing the project. And they were all very skeptical, rolling their eyes, and I don't think they expected to find anything. And then on May 5th, 2012, I'll never forget the, one of those scientists running out of his bungalow, screaming and waving his arms, there's something in the valley. We said, what is it? What is it? He said, I'm not going to say, just come in and look. So we all rushed in and looked. And honestly, I just about had a heart attack. You did not have to be an archaeologist to see the pyramid the plazas, the great earthworks, the tremendous human-engineered environment that was now completely buried in rainforest, covering you know a square mile or more of ground. Just curious, if it were excavated, which it probably never will be, would it look something like Tikal? Well, no, it wouldn't. Um, the okay. difference is because the Maya built with cut stone, so their buildings survived beautifully intact. This culture laid out their cities like the Maya, they had ball courts like the Maya, and they built pyramids like the Maya. But instead of building with cut stone, they built great earthen foundations, and then on top of that they built out of adobe, beautifully smoothed and incised adobe, and gorgeous tropical hardwoods, and they also had spectacular weaving technology. 
So these temples were probably looked just as spectacular as the Maya temples, but after the city was abandoned, they rotted and fell away, and there's nothing left. I mean, in the 10 feet of rain a year, the only thing that is left are all these big mounds. And, of course, all the stone artifacts as well. Has anybody tried to reconstruct what they might have looked like? Well, not really. You know, this culture is so unknown that it doesn't even have a formal name. They lived along the Maya frontier, but they weren't Maya. They probably spoke a a Chibchan language as opposed to a Mayan language. But the Maya have sucked all the oxygen out of the archaeological air, so to speak. This culture has been totally neglected. It's been marginalized. Even though they covered 10,000 square miles, it was a great civilization that stopped the Maya in their tracks. The Maya never got any farther west than Copan, or east than a Copan. And this culture, obviously, was blocking them. So they were powerful. But who they were, where they came from, where they went, are all great mysteries. And there's no real record from the other civilizations outside of Muscadia. It's interesting. In Copan itself, uh, some of the neighborhoods in Copan, the excavations, have uncovered artifacts that look like they came from Moschidia. So it looks like Copan was a multi-ethnic city, and some of the people in there were from the east as opposed to the west and the north. So that's kind of a mystery. The second mystery is that when Copan collapsed in 900, the great Maya collapse, this culture suddenly had a flowering. They suddenly started expanding their cities and building great earthworks and pyramids and all. And, they, and that's when they started taking on aspects of Maya culture. So it appears that when the Maya collapsed, perhaps refugees came into this area or perhaps Maya warriors came in and conquered. It's a big mystery as to where the sudden Maya influx came from. How aware were archaeologists and historians, Douglas Preston, how aware were they prior to the 90s or even 2012? How aware were they that the the civilization even existed? There had been archaeology done in Moschidia for the last 100 years, since about the 1920s. But it's, it's, it's such a difficult area and so dangerous with so many poisonous snakes and so you know, quick mud and rugged mountains that very little archaeology has been done. They've uncovered something like 200 archaeological sites, which is nothing compared to the hundreds of thousands they found of the Maya. Right. So it still is a big mystery. The Honduran archaeologist with us said, what we know about this culture is basically nothing. A quick question, and then we'll get back to this. Okay, so you did this work in the 90s. Did any novels come out of that research? Well, it is true. I wrote a novel back in the, I guess around 2000, called The Codex, which was sort of based on the legends of the White City, the desperate attempts to find it, all the charlatans and crazy people who look for it. And then in my novel, they find the White City. Now, I never thought we were going to find actually the White City in reality. And of course, we didn't really find the White City, but we did find two great lost cities, as spectacular as what I imagine in my my novel. One question about this LIDAR, because as I was reading about it and about how the scientists work with national organizations in our government, very high-tech ones, in order to get the LIDAR, I kept thinking about under a Trump administration where science is basically ignored, 
I mean, what happens to all the technology and all of the research that's being done on climate, on archaeology, on everything? Well, LIDAR is a hugely important technology to study climate change. They're LIDARing glaciers. If, if a glacier moves a, a centimeter, they can see that in LIDAR. So they LIDAR a glacier, they wait a year, they LIDAR again. There's all kinds of applications of LIDAR in climate change and engineering technology. They LIDAR the surface of, the, of Mars. Uh, one of the greatest maps ever created was the, the Mars uh, orbiter, which uh, spent 10 years making a map of the surface of Mars. They LIDAR the surface of the moon. So what's going to happen to all this, this science funding? When you have an administration that uh, is a science, I mean, they're not even anti-science because they're they're too ignorant to be anti-science. I don't know. I mean, I I feel like we're facing a brave new world here, and I I don't know what to what's going to happen. Have you talked to scientists about it? Scientists are very worried. I mean, like for example, at the National Institutes of Health, doing crucial medical research. You know, are their budgets going to be cut? I mean, the Congress has been cutting the NIH budget for years crippling absolutely vital research into cancer, mental health issues, obesity, all kinds of health issues that, that, that the NIH is doing research on have been cut to the bone, um, including uh, research into parasitic diseases, which uh, I'm interested in because I, I have one. Douglas Preston, you come back 2012, and it takes three years to deal with the funding, to deal with the Honduran government, to deal with whatever has to be dealt with. And then you go on this expedition in 2015. You land, and as the book tells us, you walk into the city. What surprised you most? And was there anything that absolutely shocked you and flipped you out that you didn't expect when you finally landed? There were two things. One was the valley itself was so pristine that the animals appeared never to have seen people before. I mean, they wandered about our camp completely unconcerned. Uh, when I was setting up my tent, I had a troop of monkeys that were above me, hanging from their tails and screeching at me and shaking branches, trying to drive me out. Animals wandered about. At night, we heard jaguars wandering about our tents, purring. And then we heard large animals, I don't know what they were, but just blundering and crashing through the jungle. Not dainty at all. So it was... Being in a place that seemed totally outside the 21st century was the first astonishment. The second was when we found the cache of objects at the base of the pyramid. There was a large central pyramid, and right at the base, absolutely obscured by vegetation, we stumbled across uh, 52 stone sculptures, just the tops coming out of the ground. And the first thing I saw was a jaguar head, snarling jaguar, just thrusting its head out of the ground. And it was such a startling and, and remarkable image. It suddenly, I had a tremendous emotional connection to the people who built the city. Before, it had been sort of theoretical. But now, I said, wow, the, you know, I understood that the people who built this city were accomplished. They were self-confident. They were artistic. They had a tremendously interesting uh, aesthetic and uh, it just was a revelation to me. I suddenly felt like I was, I could almost feel the spirits of the invisible dead around. Before you went in, nobody mentioned this disease 
leishmaniasis? No one had mentioned that to any of you? We'd gotten a list of all the tropical diseases that we had to worry about. It was such a long list that how do you pay attention to it? I mean, you can do something about malaria. I was very bad about not taking my medicine, but malaria is about the only thing you can protect against. All these other diseases, there's no prophylactic, no shots, nothing you can take. You just have to hope you don't get them. Yeah, leishmaniasis was one of out of 20 diseases that we were we were told about. And I mean, leishmaniasis was the worst. It was the most disgusting. It was the most vile and grotesque. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to get that one. Well, when you first landed, there's a sequence where you had to deal with the Fjord de Lance. That was the wildlife. The very first night, I was walking back from my hammock in, at night, and the night in the jungle is so dark. It's like you're at the bottom of, a, of an inkwell. And my flashlight illuminated this gigantic snake that I'd walked by twice in striking position. Its head, you know, its little beady eyes pointed at me, its tongue flicking. It was, you know, tracking me with its head. And so I backed up, and in as calm a voice as I could muster, others have said I shouted, but I don't believe I did. But anyway, in a calm voice, I said, hey, you guys, there's a really big snake over here. So we had three ex SAS British guys with us who are jungle commando experts. Their job was to keep us alive. And the lead guy came over and he said, oh my God, that's a fair to Lance, which is the deadliest snake in the new world. He said, I'm going to move it. Well, he uh, cut a snake stick about seven feet long with a fork at the end and he pinned the snake. And that's when the snake exploded. It uncoiled. And then you could see just how big it was. The snake was bigger than he was. And it was striking in every direction. The venom was like flying through the night. And you could see it. I could see it. It was streaming venom out of its fangs, which were more than an inch long. And I'm not exaggerating this at all. And uh, he worked the stick up right behind the snake's head. He grabbed the snake's head. But then the snake was twisting its head and expelling venom all over the back of his hand. And his skin was bubbling. So he wrestled the snake to the ground and cut off its head. And the head continued to snap and spray venom, and the headless snake tried to crawl off. I mean, it was like a scene out of a horror film. I mean, after it was all over, there was this dead silence, and then Woody, this British fellow, said, nothing like that to sort of concentrate the mind, is there? (laughs) (laughs) And then, as a warning to everyone of the danger of snakes, He took the head and he tied it to a tree in the middle of camp, really to scare everyone into making sure that they always wore their snake protection. The story of the lost city of the monkey god, the book, goes on from there. The expedition is maybe the centerpiece of the story, but the story keeps going. Over the course of the next year, because this is 2015, over the course of the next year, up until the book went to press, People went there, they did some excavation. The book goes to press. What's happened between the last time you were able to look at the manuscript and today in terms of the excavation? Anything new? Well, yes. Uh, In fact, the Hondurans have continued to excavate this cache of artifacts, and they've uncovered uh, 500 sculptures and fragments. Uh, Incredible cache of, of, just in an area about 200 square feet. And we're talking about a city that's... uh, a square mile in extent. So there's a lot more to be found. In fact, only about 10% of the city has actually been explored as of this moment. But uh, I think it's going to go on for another 100 years. 
They're not going to excavate the whole city. That's crazy. In fact, they're going to preserve 99.9% of it. The only reason they're excavating these artifacts is because of the danger of looting. And also because the Hondurans are very proud about this discovery and the the artifacts are going into the National Museum and also into the Presidential Palace where the president has set up a little room for people to come in and see them. I mean, this is a big deal for Honduras. The president said to me that Hondurans need to get to know their pre-Columbian past more. They don't really have a strong sense of identity. They know their Spanish past, but they don't know their pre-Columbian past as well. And that this discovery is starting to put them in touch with their pre-Columbian roots. Two more questions here, then I'd like to talk a little about your career. The first is the medical question. Several months later, you began having, it's on your arm, uh, some kind of sore developed, and that's when you found out you had this strange disease. Where is it now? Because four months ago, as you said before we went on the air, when you finally finished the final galleys and sent it off, you were concerned that it was coming back. So four months later, it's not back. I just looked. There is a treatment you can do, which I don't know if it works or not, but heat. The the application of heat seems to keep it in check because the parasite lives in the gut of the sandfly, and the gut of the sandfly is 77 degrees. So it doesn't really like the human body temperature, and that's why it grows on the skin and eventually migrates to your face and right. destroys your face, which is the, the worst part of it. But unfortunately, the, there are these nodules under my skin which indicate that it's coming back, but very slowly. So my doctor says, well, you know, it's not a fast-acting disease. The uh, medicine you take is very, very dangerous itself. It's toxic. So just sit tight and let's see what happens. And the Mosquito civilization disappeared, and the final section of The Lost City of the Monkey God is a cautionary tale about the destruction of civilizations, uh, including what they all suspect, which is that a pandemic from mostly the Spanish probably wiped everybody out, and how that relates to today. And as you did your research on that, were you getting more and more scared about our current civilization? I was quite worried when you actually delve into our vulnerability, you realize that You know, the last great pandemic that afflicted the human race was the Spanish flu in 1918, which killed 100 million people. Uh, My great-uncle died in that pandemic. Epidemiologists believe that there's no reason that something like that wouldn't happen again. Even with modern medicine and all our medical technology, they estimate that another pandemic like that would kill 360 million people and caused $3 trillion of economic damage to the earth before it was brought under control. And epidemiologists tell me it isn't a question of if it's going to happen, it's a question of when. And that really surprised me. You know, these are sober doctors. They're not doom and gloom types. And of course, you know, with global warming, my book talks a lot about leishmaniasis. Leishmaniasis has just moved into the United States because of global warming. There was an outbreak of it in uh, Texas, and there was another outbreak in Oklahoma right near the Arkansas border. And I talked to the doctors who contained that outbreak, and they said, well, it's still there. It's still cycling in nature. And studies have been done that show under the best-case climate scenario, not the worst case, but the best-case scenario, 
By the year 2080, Leishmaniasis will have migrated all the way across the south and eastern part of the United States into southern Canada, exposing 200 million people to this really horrific and actually incurable disease. Of course, by that time, if we have an NIH, they might have found a cure. Well, it's, 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 it's quite possible, or they even better to find a vaccine. And they've been working on a vaccine, but this is a parasite. It's a single-celled animal. It's a lot harder to come up with a vaccine than it is for a virus or a bacterium. I knew a little bit about the disappearance of the Indians, Native Americans, when the Spanish arrived, but I wasn't aware of the fact that when we were in school, we were told, oh, the Spanish had their weaponry and the Indians were more defenseless and so on and so forth. But in point of fact, 95% of these cultures were wiped out by their diseases that were brought over from the old world. Yes, that's right. Uh, the, the real conquest was by pathogens, not by arms and armor and everything else. It was the pathogens, especially measles and smallpox, and influenza. Well, there were quite a few that the Spanish brought over. And uh, the mortality rate, these figures are highly controversial, but the mortality rate was probably around 90%. And, you know, the Black Death, the mortality rate was 30%. In some areas, in the worst areas, it was 60%. Now, that's not enough to wipe out an actual civilization. But 90% is enough to wipe out a civilization. It, it, it destroys a person's stories. It destroys their history. It destroys their everything they have. It leaves these people with nothing. It even destroys languages. So it was the greatest calamity ever to befall the human species, the meeting of the old world and the new, and the transference of old world disease into the new world. And I talk a lot in the book about why New world disease didn't afflict the old world. There, there are many interesting reasons why disease only flowed one way. But it, it was, I mean, this is not to excuse the genocide of conquest, but it was, you know, basically a, a vast migration of dumb pathogens from one side of the earth to the other that killed most of the people. Just curious, what is your feeling about the anti-vaxxers? I think the anti-vaxxers are anti-science the same way the anti-climate the climate change deniers are anti-science. I mean, vaccines are a, are a wonderful gift of medicine to the human race and have saved millions and millions of lives. Douglas Preston, let's talk a little bit about your career. You grew up in the Boston area, and your brother Richard, you sort of intersect in some areas on what you write about. Were you friends? Were you kind of at cross purposes growing up? Did both of you think you'd be writers? We were friends and enemies growing up, just like brothers are. I mean, we got in some big fights. I remember once my brother knocked my two front teeth out. I swallowed him. He hit me so hard in the face. And I deserved it, by the way. I fully deserved it. But we used to tell gross stories at the dinner table. We used to try to top each other. And my mother would say, one more gross story and you're both going out on the stairs. And then we'd tell another gross story and we'd both go out on the stairs. So now we are still telling gross stories and actually making a living doing it. Well, he's two years older than you. Which one of you began writing first? It's funny. He began writing first. He always knew he was going to be a writer right from the beginning. I was more confused. I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do. And 
I went to New York and I became an editor and didn't like that very much. But, you know, I was sort of at sea for a while and then I kind of started to write nonfiction. And then I started to write novels with Lincoln Child. And uh, we, that's when we created the Pendergast series. And I love writing those thrillers. So, you know, I always took myself very seriously as a writer. And then when I started writing these wonderful thrillers, I, I had so much fun doing it. I thought, oh, well, they may not be the great American novel, but they're I just love writing them, so I'm going to keep doing it. You worked at the American Museum of Natural History, and that's where you first started writing, correct? It is. I edited their newsletter, and then I became a manager of publications, and I also wrote a column in Natural History magazine. And Lincoln was your editor? Well, he was, yeah. For my first book, Dinosaurs in the Attic, which was a nonfiction book about the museum, Link was my editor. After that book was written... He said, listen, we've got to write a thriller set in the museum. This is such a cool place. And I said, Link, I don't know how to write a thriller. He said, don't worry, I do. He said, I edit thrillers all day long. Most of them are really bad, so I know what not to do. So believe me, we can write a thriller together. So we both wrote Relic, and that became the movie and everything else and a bestseller, and that's how we got started. What was the process at the beginning? I mean, who wrote those first drafts? How, who wrote an outline? How did that work, given that you were the expert on the natural history and he was the thriller person? In the beginning, he had a fear of the blank computer screen, so he wanted me to write the first draft, which I was happy to do because I, I love writing. So I wrote you know, some chapters, and I sent them to Link, and then he had the absolute temerity the gall to rewrite my Shakespearean-level prose, which really pissed me off. We had a huge argument, and that's how it began. <laughs> but now we've realized, both of us, that um, we're going to rewrite each other pretty severely, and it's a good thing because uh, I'm not a perfect writer and he's not a perfect writer, and so we swap material, we re- rewrite each other, and we may grumble about it, but we always end up 100% trusting each other, because I really trust Lincoln. When he reads something I've written, he said, this is no good. After I recover from my swearing at him or whatever, I have to recognize that he's right. This is why I have a writing partner. Your first solo novel was Jenny. Was that extra scary because you didn't have Link looking over your shoulder? Yeah, it was. You know, when you're writing a novel, you very often find yourself writing and writing and writing yourself into a a dark, deep, blind alley. And you get to the alley, at the end of the alley, and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I've got to throw away 10 chapters. It's all garbage. I've got to start all over again from some point. Well, with Lincoln, I don't do that. I send him the the chapter that started down the blind alley, and he calls me up and says, Doug, we're not going to go down that blind alley. We're not going to go this way. We're going to do this. And and that's great. That's great. So with Jenny, it was a lot of blind alleys. It was also my first novel. There was a lot of stuff I would have done differently with that novel. If I'd had Link there, he probably would have forced me to do it differently. So what happens is if one of you hits a snag, send it to the other one, he goes, hey, I got a solution. Let's go in this direction, something like that? That's right. Yeah, we'd, we'd, if, if we hit a, you know, Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll just be totally stymied. And I'll call Link up, and in five minutes, we'll have worked it out. At other times, I'll want to do A, and Link will want to do B, and we'll get in a huge fight. And finally, we'll calm ourselves down, and we'll say, look, both A and B have to be wrong, because we both disagree with each other. So let's find C, 
And so we go off and we find C, and C is better than A and B. Uh, do the ideas generally come out of your research, um, or do they come out of his? A lot of them come out of my research, but Lincoln also has very interesting research areas. He's really into computers and cryptography, and he also is a, is big on archaeology. His He comes from a family of archaeologists like I do. So yeah, we, we find our interests really coincide. He's also a, a polymath. I mean, he can quote from linguist literature, he can quote from the Fairy Queen and Paradise Lost. It's amazing. His, uh, his knowledge of English literature. Does politics play any role? Uh, do you try to keep politics out? I mean, obviously, you have certain very strong views about science in particular that are stronger now than they ever were. Well, we do. Lincoln and I have similar political views. We like to get on the phone and really go into a tear on our political complaints we don't really put them in our novels. Our, our novels are not, uh, they're thrillers, and they're not really, I mean, I, I suppose there are some political currents in the novels, but they're not really contemporary political currents. You know, I, I think the novels are very pro-science, which might put us in one camp or another. But as far as the actual nitty-gritty of political campaigns, it doesn't go into that. But social movements have to be in almost any literature, don't they? Well, they do. It's a social movement, social justice, um, science, uh, what science tells us about the world, the truth, truth and falsehood. These are all important themes in our novels. So yes, there, there are political themes in the novels. And I mean, I definitely have to say, you know, the novels are pro-science. Now, we live in a world now where there are a whole bunch of anti-science people uh, running things or in making claims that are not scientific. Um, don't read our novels because if you don't like science and you think that science is is uh, a hoax or whatever, you're not going to like our novels at all because there's a lot of science in our novels. Um, and we love science. Lincoln and I both love science. Hollywood has not really beckoned that much, though there was The Relic and Jenny also became a film. One thing I discovered, and it's only in one place, that your nonfiction book, Monster of Florence, which is about, well, first of all, what is Monster of Florence? And secondly, is George Clooney playing you? Well, The Monster of Florence is a nonfiction book I wrote with an Italian journalist. It's a true story about a serial killer who murdered young lovers in the Tuscan Hills between 1974 and 1985 and was never caught. He's Italy's Jack the Ripper. Actually, he, he makes Jack the Ripper look like uh, Mr. Rogers. I mean, he was really horrific, just unbelievably horrific. So I wrote a book about that, and uh, George Clooney, his, his production company, bought the rights, and uh, he was, was going to play me in the film. But it's a long journey between an option and a film. So who knows where we are on that road IMDb only lists around three or four th items. Uh, are there more in the works? I assume most of the books with Linker option. Well, the thing is that the relic was bought by Paramount Pictures, and they acquired the character of Pendergast. So all 17 Pendergast books, the character rights are owned by Paramount Pictures. And Paramount is now working with the producer Gail Ann Hurd on a television series called Pendergast. 
So that's very exciting. That's been the very early stages. But Gail Ann Hurd is a terrific producer. She did, you know, Aliens and The Walking Dead and so forth. I mean, she's great. So uh, we have high hopes for that. But it's still just in the early stages. Douglas Preston, Lost City of the Monkey God has come out. Are you working on anything for National Geographic? Have you started working on another novel with Link? Well, I'm working on another novel with Link, and we're actually arguing right now about what the title is going to be. So, what do you say and what does he say? Oh, I don't know. We, we, we go back and forth this way and that. And, and uh, none of us, we're not really satisfied with anything. And our publisher is starting to freak out. They're going to have to publish the book, Untitled Pendergast Novel. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we'll call it Untitled Pendergast Novel. I don't know. It's a novel that takes place in New York City, mostly. And it harkens back in many ways to our earlier novel with Pendergast called The Cabinet of Curiosities. Any work on National Geographic at this point? Not, not at the present time, no. I've got a, actually a story coming out in, in the New Yorker magazine on a, a big scientific discovery, but I can't really say what it is. And finally, on um, Lost City of the Monkey God, are you planning to do any follow-up research, say, a year from now on what's been happening since, or is that finally, except for your arm, kind of gone? No, I'll, I'll definitely be following this story. You know, there, there are rumors about more discoveries being made in the area. This, you know, huge areas of the city have not even been explored. And that really is, interests me um, to find out what they're going to see there. So yeah, I'm going to be, I'll be following that story for the rest of my life. And the Steve Elkins documentary on Lost City, is that going to exist? Does it exist? Well, it does. They're, they're putting it together, and it's going to be absolutely fantastic. I've seen footage from it. It's tremendous. I mean, he had a camera going all the time when stuff is found. You know, you don't normally see Discovery live on camera like this. So it's going to be a great documentary. And I don't know, another six months or so, it might be ready for early viewing, I suppose. Douglas Preston, whose latest book, uh, nonfiction work about exploration in Honduras, The Lost City of the Monkey God, and coming up, an untitled <laughs> Pendergast novel. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.